Good morning, friends. I look forward to our time in the Word this morning. It's a, certainly a, a very interesting passage that we have to unpack. But to begin with, I want to let you know that I'm interested in history. I enjoy uh, history very much. Um, and one thing is true about history is that the reports of those who lived during or soon after an event carries the most weight, right? So if we can get someone who was there, uh, it, it's helpful in terms of our understanding of that historical event. This is how we know what happened at Gettysburg, for example. We, we have a report of someone who was there. And so we read the report, and lo and behold, it seems to line up with other reports that we read, and so we can have a pretty good assurance that what we read in our history books concerning Gettysburg is accurate. And if we don't have someone who was there, at least we have maybe someone who spoke to someone who was there or, or received a letter from someone who was at the event in question. So we can establish accurate definitions or descriptions of anything historical. And so when we come to our text today, this has a particular um, importance to us. And to, to get you into the, the flavor of where I'm going, I want you to open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 9. I know you just heard from Mark 16, and we'll get there in a minute, but I want to uh, whet your appetite for what I'm going to say by reading something for you from Mark chapter 9. Verse, starting in verse 43. I'm going to read to you from the King James Version, and so you'll have to um, translate as you read your own copy. All right, and this is Mark 9, starting in verse 43 from the King James Version. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands and go into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Verse 45, And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell where the fire that never shall be quenched. Verse 46, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Verse 47, and if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes and be cast into hell fire. Verse 48, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Now, is anybody in the room confused? Not by the King James English, but by something else. Where are your verses? You're missing some verses in your copy. What's going on here? Is the King James that much better than yours? Well, let me share something else. Turn with me to um, John chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 5. I again will read from the King James, starting in verse 3. John chapter 5, verse 3. In these 
lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the water to uh, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel went down at the certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity 38 years. Same problem, right? You didn't hear, or you didn't see, rather, verse 4, right? Unless you have a King James, then you were able to read verse 4 with me. Other than that, you just had to listen. There are 17 of these type of passages in the New Testament. What do we do with them? One of the most prominent is Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. The only reason it's in your version is because of its length. And so the translators, the scholars behind the translators, uh, suggested that we include it. But what do we do with these passages? What is happening here in the text in front of us? And so what I want to do for you this morning is, is try to explain to you as best as I can the problems with the text in front of us, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, and then the blessings that we receive from the same passage. All right? So let's, let's look at our first, go turn with me to Mark chapter 16, if you would, back to that text where we're going to look at today. Let's look at the problems here in front of us. And this is more like a, um, well, it's an abnormal sermon, um, but it's more like a kind of a, a class, a Bible school class or something like that this morning instead of your typical sermon. But let's look at the problems here. Um, textual criticism, anybody heard those two words before? Textual criticism put together at least. We've heard it with criticism a lot and maybe textual a little, but textual criticism is really uh, what we can call a textual analysis. It's a science of determining the most accurate versions of the Bible's words, phrases, or verses. What, in fact, should be included and what should not is the role of a textual critic, someone who spends their lives studying fragments of ancient manuscripts, going over them literally with magnifying glasses. That's what a textual critic does. And they're unbelievably intelligent people. And their job is complex and complicated. So textual criticism is, is what is in play here in the verses from Mark 16. Um, but how do we know which verses in question ought to be included in the Bible and which verses ought not to be included in the Bible? That is what a textual critic does. That's what textual analysis is about. And that's why it is so difficult and complex to get to the bottom of. But there are two things in this complex science of textual criticism that make up textual criticism, textual analysis. The first is external evidence, things outside of the text that help us understand whether or not this text belongs in scripture or not, all right? External evidence is made up of things like manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts. And just so you know, there are no original manuscripts that, that Mark actually wrote. There are none of those. 
Um, back before the, the Gutenberg press was invented, manuscripts lasted between 150 and 200 years and then uh, fragments and then nothing and then just copies. And so the manuscripts under, in, under observation currently are not the originals. They are copies of the originals or copies of copies of the originals. Once Gutenberg got going, then things changed. I'm, I'm always, I'm gonna ask God this, why didn't Gutenberg, why wasn't he around like in the first century? That would have been helpful, but I don't know, he wasn't. So there's external evidence like things, manuscript evidence, and then there's this cooperation from other sources. Things like, what did church fathers, those guys who came right after the apostles, who led the church, what did they have to say about texts like this? They all wrote, they all preached, and, and their sermons were recorded on paper. What did they say about it? That's that the, the cross-referencing kind of idea that helps modern-day textual critics get to the bottom of what verses ought to be included and what verses ought not to be included. And so we have guys, church fathers like Eusebius of Caesarea, who lived from 265 to 340, and Jerome, another church father who lived from 347 to 420, both explain this, that almost all Greek manuscripts during their day omitted verses 9 through 20. Almost all. Any, any copy of the original that they had access to didn't include it. Didn't include Mark 16, 9 through 20. And there are many other church fathers that you may or may not recognize the names of um, who didn't even know that these verses existed. They even never encountered the idea. Why? Because they weren't in any of the manuscripts they had. It wasn't in their copy of the Bible. And so this longer ending that we're looking at today, which that's what it's called, by the way, the longer ending of Mark's gospel, the shorter ending ends in verse 8. The longer ending verse the longer ending of Mark goes from 9 through 20. So the, this longer ending to Mark's gospel uh, is what we have in front of us today, at least most of us. Secondly, uh, the, the second element, important element of textual analysis or textual criticism is what they call internal evidence. Internal evidence. That is, what can we see within the text under question that would help us understand whether or not they belong. Internal evidence. For example, I want you to look at verse eight with me, and then notice the significant switch when you get to verse nine. Okay, listen to verse eight. And they went out, who went out? These women that were at the tomb went out, fled from the tomb, trembling um, and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Verse 9, now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Totally incongruent. Like, what? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I know Mark is a little ADD, but this is beyond that. This is like he's talk, someone else is talking here. It, it doesn't, it's, there's no congruency here between verses 8 and verse 9. That's internal evidence to make the textual critic go, something's up here. Something isn't kosher. Things like vocabulary style in this last section 
does not match the rest of Mark's book that we've been studying for the past couple years. For example, look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. You say, what's so wrong with that? Well, here's what's wrong with that. Mark never calls Jesus the Lord Jesus as his entire book. And yet here in this section he does. That's internal evidence that raises the antenna of a textual critic. Saying, hold on, Mark doesn't talk like that. I have a friend... Uh, in fact, he's preached here before, Clyde Cooper. Uh, we went to Bible school and seminary together. And he is, he is like amazingly um, familiar with the Apostle Paul's Greek writing. He, 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 everything he does in his study is in Greek. You sit down to study the Bible, you open your English version and you study, you read commentaries. 100% of his study is in Greek. He just knows Greek that well. And he said to me a few years back, we were talking about uh, a text or something. I can't remember what it was. I think it was Hebrews. And it was Hebrews. And, and he was saying to me, uh, I don't think Hebrews was Pauline. In other words, Paul wrote it. And I said, eh, there's some, I don't know. Yeah, there is some differences there. And he goes, I know Paul. He didn't write it. He didn't write it. These guys that, that know and study this stuff under a microscope, they can sense who's saying what because they are so familiar with it. You, you know people well enough to know that when someone says something, you go, ah, I know who told you that, right? That's what this is, very same kind of thing. Internal evidence. Mark doesn't talk like that, someone could say. All right, so uh, the next internal evidence that I want to alert you to, and by the way, there's a bunch more external and a bunch more internal. I'm just giving you a taste here, okay? The inclusion, speaking of more internal evidence, of apostolic signs does not match any of the other three Gospels. Did you read weird stuff? Did you hear weird stuff when the section was being read? Like, what? Uh, well, that, that raises the antenna of people who study these things. So you look at the other Gospels, and none of the, none of the apostolic signs that are mentioned here in these verses are mentioned in the other Gospels. Antenna goes up, all right? And, and then you get to certain signs, um, verses 17 and 18, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, okay? You can find those in, in you know, some of the New Testament books. But then, verse 18, then they, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. What? Are you kidding? No. Well, it's nowhere in Scripture, not just in the Gospels. That's nowhere else in Scripture. Side note, let's not create a doctrine around this. I was going to bring some rattlers this morning and pass them around, but I went into the nursery and I couldn't find any baby rattlers, so I left them, I just went left and thought I would come here. I was going to bring a box and everything, but I don't know. Or some, are you with me? Are you, are you with me here this morning? Okay, good. So you read stuff like this, and, and if you're a textual critic, you're, you, be, you become alerted to a potential problem, right? 
So what we can say here, and, and this is where I'm going to mention to you a conundrum that I have this morning. There is a 99.9% .9 chance that Mark had nothing to do with these verses. Which means, what? They're not inspired, right? And someone here is going to ask me afterwards, so I'll just address it now. Why are you preaching uninspired words? We're here to listen to God's word, right? Yeah. There's the conundrum. It's in your Bibles, and what are you going to do if I pass it off and don't talk about it? You're going to come up to me and ask me, why are you skipping church, the verses in the Bible, right? So I struggle with whether or not to, to preach this. There's, there, the commentators are divided on whether or not you should even preach this. Some that we respect say, no, you need to because they're in our Bibles, and some say, no, don't touch that stuff. It's not, not Scripture. So if we're going to preach this and teach this section, we must keep in mind the things I've said. If you're going to study it, you need to keep in mind these things. Don't go out and start a women's ministry of snake handling. All right? I, we're not going to endorse it. So we can't establish doctrines on, on passages like this. So knowing that Mark 16, 9 through 20 isn't inspired might cause some of you uh, sitting here thinking, well, boy, howdy. What's that do for my confidence in the Bible, right? And I want to share with you how it does the exact opposite. It will build your confidence in your copy, in your hands this morning, all right? So listen, if you're concerned about now, how do I know what I'm reading is actually God's word I want to remind you that this actually strengthens your confidence. The science of textual analysis makes it possible, listen, for Bible scholars to accurately identify the very few passages that are not part of the original manuscripts. And then they identify it in our new versions. They tell you this is not in the original manuscripts. Did any of you read that up above there in your version? It says in the English translation right before verse 9, in parentheses, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. There's the alert. So if you're going to go a deep dive into some biblical study on the following verses, be aware is what the translators are telling you, is what I'm telling you. Okay, so... The places in the Bible that, that are in question, like Mark and, and John and other places, are clearly marked by the translators in all the newer versions, but not in the King James. Why? It's not that the King James is a faulty version. It's they didn't have the degree of textual analysis in 1611 when the King James was written. So they didn't have access to this level or depth of science to make these kind of distinctions. So this is important. For example, New Testament Greek scholar William Mounts um, said the following. There are over 400,000 differences, now don't get excited, 
There are over 400,000 differences among the 5,600 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And yet not even 1% of those variants are both meaningful and viable. 400,000, that means a letter is added or omitted. All these differences in our Bibles add up to 400,000 and not even 1% of those variants are both meaningful and viable. Textual critics look at the external and internal evidence, the things I just mentioned, and they have done an excellent job at combing through all the manuscripts and making their decisions, and there is not a single viable variant that calls into question any point of biblical theology, major or minor. Is that helpful? I hope. I want, you to, I want you to leave here not questioning. I want you to be more assured that what you have is actually the content from the original writers of the scriptures. They, and by the way, this particular science is growing. It's deepening. It's improving. It's wonderful. So the longer the church exists, the more sure our confidence is in the Bibles we have in our hands. Because of the advances and the application of textual analysis. So where did this added section of Mark come from? If it wasn't from Mark's pen, well, scholars believe that somewhere around the early or mid-second century, verses 9 through 20 were added by some early Christian scribe that thought Mark's gospel ended incorrectly. He didn't think it was appropriate for it to end at verse 8. And all of us can say, thank you very much, keep your own ideas to yourself. Right? That's at least my response. I want to meet this guy when I get to heaven. Um, it was a well-meaning but frustrating addition, isn't it? Yeah. So the content, for the most part, has what was added came from the New Testament scriptures. But there are some obvious additions that didn't, i.e. snake handling. But let's first take a look at some of the blessings of this odd passage that is in front of us. That's the first thing I want to do this morning after what I'm, I've just explained to you. But then I also want to share with you at the end of the sermon why verse 8 is actually a good and intended ending of Mark's gospel. Okay? Even though it sounds abrupt, verse 8 does sound abrupt, no, no question, but there's a reason it sounds abrupt. All right, we'll get there by the end of our time together. So let's now look at the blessings with Mark 16, 9 through 20. If this isn't inspired scripture, why are we wasting an entire Sunday morning on it? Well, like I mentioned, so you'd understand this. And then secondly, there are actually blessings here that I think are intended by God. Not inspired, but intended by God. And I know that may be confusing, but that's exactly what it is. So, even though these verses I don't think are inspired by God, in His grace He has allowed them to continue in our Bibles as they are. Um, and the reason that these verses can be viewed as a blessing instead of a conundrum is that they give us a, listen, a unique insight into the thinking of the very earliest Christians. What we're reading here is what someone from the second century thinks about these things. How important is that? What if you could pick the mind of a person who lived in Gettysburg at the time of that battle? <laughs> You'd have a pretty good idea, wouldn't you, of what's going on there in Gettysburg? 
So that's the unique opportunity we have here in front of us. This is what early Christians were thinking. With from within 60 to 75 years of Jesus' resurrection, this was written. All right? So, first of all, I want you to now look at verses 9 through 20 with me. And the first thing that comes out is that the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, was confirmed in the second century. By the middle of the second century, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was confirmed, and listen to this next word, unchallenged. By the middle of the second century, it was unchallenged. If there was a challenge, this is significant, folks. If there was a significant and legitimate challenge, it would have come up by now. Right? This is the second century. This, if this resurrection farce would have been exposed by now. But the fact that it hadn't been because of this second century point gives us great confidence that the resurrection actually happened. Blessing number one. Blessing number two. Jesus cared deeply for Mary Magdalene. Again, second century information, the story of Jesus' appearance to Mary, first of all, remained. Jesus cared deeply for her. Before anyone else, before Jesus appeared to his own mother, before he appeared to any of the eleven, before he appeared to the apostle that he loved, according to John, he appeared to Mary. Why? Mary Magdalene. She was one of the most notorious sinners in this small band of disciples. We might think she would be the last one he would appear to. But she was the first. What does this teach us? This woman had been demon-possessed and was most likely a woman of the night, as they say. But Mary was shown exceptional blessing by Jesus appearing to her first because she followed closely to Christ. She was in love with her Savior. And that, doesn't that come out in the Gospels? Yes. She was faithful to him. She loved him deeply. She was overflowing with thanksgiving. So Jesus' choice of revealing himself to Mary first has been the source of great encouragement to the church ever since the resurrection. Why? Pay attention here. Because all believers who have come out of a dark and dysfunctional background into the faith find hope in this very thing. Jesus appeared to Mary, of all people, first. I think this reminds the church of God's grace to all of us. No one is left out. No saint is considered second class by Jesus. Evidence? In the second century, they thought that Mary was the first one who Jesus appeared to. Scripture speaks of that also, by the way. So God's grace, we learn from this record, isn't restricted to those who haven't sinned a lot. You ever find yourself like putting yourself below other Christians you know because they're a better Christian than you? Well, that's not the way it goes. God's grace reaches to the deepest and darkest places to rescue people. In fact, 
we, we read in scripture that Jesus specializes in great sinners. Remember, the apostle Paul, a sinner of who I am the chief, he says. And by the way, Jesus only saves sinners. Aren't you glad you're a sinner? Church history has some notorious examples of the lowlifes that Jesus saves. Ever heard of Augustine? He was a famous philanderer. Famous. Ever heard of John Newton? We sing his hymns. He was a great theologian, a pastor. Guess what else he was before he was saved? A slave trader. He actually went to Africa and captured slaves and brought them and sold them. Yeah, that John Newton. Now, there's no doubt that these and all who come to Christ by faith have been and are forgiven. So here's a sidelight to Jesus' choice of the lowly, including Mary. Look at your copy again. Mary goes and, and talks to the 11 disciples and what's their response? Oh great, Jesus rose from the dead, right? Was it? No, it says they, don't, they didn't believe. An eyewitness shows up and says, I saw the Lord, and they said, ah, no you didn't. He died, remember? So nine of the 11 disciples remained unconvinced even after Mary shows up and tells them that she had seen the Lord. You remember the two that were convinced? Remember how they got convinced? They were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus and Jesus joined them. And he convinced them of his identity, reminded them of what the Old Testament said about the Savior. And then at the end of the visit, however long that was, hours, they finally recognized him. This came up in youth group last Wednesday. And I want to tell you, this is why they didn't recognize him. Look at verse 12. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them. Did he raise with his own body or not? I'll let you ponder that. <clears throat> so, even after being told by Jesus prior to his death on at least two occasions, they remained in unbelief after an eyewitness approached him. So here's the encouragement that I take from these verses that are uninspired for your encouragement. I, I want to share it. God remains committed to us even when our lack of faith causes us to be ineffective in our Christian life. Like doubting. Like being unproductive. And to tell you this is a biblical principle, I'm going to take you to 2 Timothy 2.13. That is inspired. If we are faithless, listen to this good news, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Even these unbelieving disciples, as much as they had been encouraged and told and taught from Jesus himself, in their unbelief rejected an eyewitness account of Jesus' resurrection. They were being unfaithful. And Jesus scolded them for it, by the way, when he when he met with them in the upper room. But he met with them, didn't he? Yeah. So my question here, Christian friend, 
is do you have doubts about your faith? You wonder whether or not it's genuine? About whether or not God truly loves you? Or about your usefulness to God's kingdom because of your past failures? These kind of things bother you? This uninspired record is helpful. It reminds us that the doubts of the original disciples and Jesus' response to them should reassure us that God works through and past your doubts and failures. He went to the 11 that didn't believe. He chose Mary to be the first. So we should learn that God works this way with us, and if he works this way with us, he works this way with others, like the people sitting next to you. It's amazing how much space we give ourselves and how much little space we give others. He uses imperfect disciples. He's continually in the process of making us Christ-like. And so we should accept one another, be patient with one another, thank God for each other, because every believer is a work in progress. Right? The next thing I want to point out to you is in verse 15, and it's the Great Commission. And he said to them, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This is certainly a biblical truth. It's just uninspired in this location. We put on the overhead for you as a passage to meditate on before the service started, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, which is inspired. And it says the same thing. So why isn't this inspired? Because it didn't come from Mark's pen. So the addition of these verses to the end of Mark's gospel reemphasizes the weight that the early church felt. Remember, this came from a second century Christian the weight that the early church felt regarding the commission. They, they continued even in the second century to say, this is really important. That we tell people about Jesus and his resurrection. So Jesus is interested in the spread of his gospel into all the world. He does want every tribe and every tongue represented around his throne in heaven one day. And that wasn't lost on the early church. They knew why they were here. Do we? Have we forgotten why we're saved? Is it so that we can have Bible studies? No. It's so that we can share the good news of the kingdom. You say, I'm not, I'm not an evangelist. You don't need to be. You need to be able to invite your neighbor. You need to be able to hand them a, gospel, a copy of the Gospel of John for Christmas. You don't have to be an evangelist. You don't have to be a, a Greek scholar or a scholar, period. You just need to be in love with your neighbor. Look at verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. I mean, it's one thing to, to condemn each other for behavior that doesn't become us. But it's a significantly different level to be condemned by God, isn't it? This remained in the forefront of the thinking in the early church. The consequences of rejecting Christ's gospel are awful. Next, in the same verse, verse 16, 
we learned that even, even in the second century, baptism was important, and not just baptism, the sequence of baptism in the second century was important. What do I mean? Well, first of all, the apostles affirmed and preached and practiced baptism. Baptism in this verse, according to second century recollection, must follow belief. You see that? Believe and be baptized. Believe, then baptism. So there is a sequence that was important to early Christians. And it begins with belief, not baptism. So, have you believed the gospel? Are you sitting here, one who's able to understand what I'm saying, and having embraced Christ and yet remained unbaptized? You're breaking God's command. You are to believe and be baptized. I don't like water. I don't like getting in front of people. Who cares? It doesn't matter. We, we baptize a lot of people who are uncomfortable with those kind of things. Jesus commands us to be baptized, to believe and then be baptized. And so if you haven't believed or you are too young to know what you do believe, then you shouldn't be baptized. Parents, take note. Don't baptize your kids before they understand the gospel. There is a sequence that early second century Christians understood and embraced. Believe, then be baptized. J.C. Ryle wrote this, thousands are washed in sacramental water who were never washed in the blood of Christ. What's he talking about? He's talking about infant baptism. This is a good warning to not be baptizing those who don't believe. Okay? Next, verse 19. I've already addressed 17 and 18, which is why I'm skipping them. 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. My point, Jesus' work is complete. And they were convinced of it in the second century. Nothing needed to be added to his work. Why? How do we know this? Because he sat down. We read this other places in the scriptures, but here we read it from the pen of a second century Christian. They believed and knew with all their heart that Jesus' work was complete because he sat down. You know, in the tabernacle, there were six pieces of furniture. None of them were a seat. You know that? There were no seats in the tabernacle. There was a brazen altar out there, a wash basin, a candelabra, a table of showbread, a table of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, no seat. What are you, what's these priests supposed to do if they get tired? Go home, and the next shift will come in. There is no rest for Old Testament tabernacle priests. There was always work to do, always. There wasn't a minute rest, no 15-minute breaks. And so when Jesus completed his tasks, what did he do? What did God do in the Old Testament when he completed creation? The seventh day. He rested. What did Jesus do when he completed his task of 
redemption. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. His work is done. Everything you need for your salvation was completed by Christ the moment he rose from the grave. Everything. Finally, we see in verse 20 that the second century church responded to the Great Commission with fervor. Do you see that? And I want to challenge you as a member of the 21st century church, 20 centuries later, have we lost that fervor? Look what it says. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Have we lost that kind of fervor? I hope not. I hope you haven't. I hope I haven't. They were obeying the final command of our Savior to go into all the world and preach the gospel, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the world, including Yakima. By the way, we are the uttermost. According, literally, according to Acts chapter 1, we are the uttermost parts of the world. We're way away from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, aren't we? We're the uttermost. And we're to be sharing the gospel. Are we? Again, you don't have to be an evangelist. You don't have to be a scholar. You just need to love people. Invite them to church if you're unwilling or unable to share the gospel. Give them a copy of the Gospel of John instead of a plate of cookies, or maybe and a plate of cookies for Christmas. See, so let's move now to my conclusion why did Mark end his gospel record so abruptly at verse 8? And why do the scribes feel compelled to adjust the ending of this gospel? Look at verse 8. And this is the true ending of Mark's gospel. This is where his pen came off the parchment. And they went out and fled, who? The women who were at the tomb. They fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. How is that a good ending? Well, follow me. The purpose of Mark's gospel was to confirm the true identity of Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the solution to the chaos of sin, right? Isn't that what we've been covering for the past couple years? Yeah, that's almost in every sermon that I've preached about it. He accomplished that purpose, that objective, to reveal his true identity. Remember all the miracles that he did over and over and over again that Mark recorded. And then finally the resurrection, which really was the, the ace, the stamp, the final proof of Jesus' identity. His resurrection solved the sin problem. It solved our separation from God problem. It solved the chaos problem. You're saying, well, <laughs> chaos, I, there's chaos now. Well, how does Christ solve that problem? How does Mark show that Jesus is the solution to chaos. Listen, one thing that Mark nor God never promises or promised in this book was that Christian life would be easy. You know, it's amazing to me how many people are disappointed when they come to faith to realize that their life didn't get better and sometimes got worse. It's like, shouldn't have done that. Well. You're not going to find any promises in the Bible 
that states such things as a simplified life or a better life once you're saved, once you come to Christ. No. Mark never promises that. God never promises that. This is why verse 8 ends the way it does. It seems like they're afraid. They were afraid. It says they were afraid, running away. Afraid of what? Listen, <laughs> Mark did not say that knowing Jesus' true identity, which these women, it finally dawned on them, it finally dawned on them that moment that the angel said, come in and look at this empty tomb, it dawned on them what Mark has been saying all along. Jesus' true identity, his true identity doesn't make life a cakewalk. And, and we shouldn't live our Christian lives on cruise control, thinking there should be no problems. There is still chaos. We simply have someone who walks with us through it. Mark was writing to people, <clears throat> excuse me, who knew better, who had significant problems. They were living in Rome for Pete's sake, under Nero, who was killing Christians left and right. Talk about chaos. They knew it firsthand. So Mark knew that especially the Christian life would contain uncertainty, fear, anxiousness, and struggle. But now the original readers had assurance because of this book, they had assurance that none of their hardships were by chance. And none of them would be experienced in the absence of Christ. He is risen. He is alive. His spirit is with his people. Always, even up to today. Mark's ending actually is so appropriate. It leaves us in awe of God who became one of us to solve the chaos of our sin, not by removing the chaos, but by assuring us that he is the Lord of chaos and is with us as we deal with it on a daily, daily occasion. So as much as we may face the scary unknown days ahead, we can face them just as the women who found the empty tomb did. Knowing that we have a loving Savior who is alive and well and walking with us. Our fear and anxiety should be calmed by the same things or described by the same words that they were experiencing, which was trembling ecstasy. Look at verse 8, for trembling and astonishment, where we get our word ecstasy. That's how we can approach the Christian life. It's going to be scary, but we're certain that we have a Savior that loves us, is walking with us. It's going to be an exciting road, isn't it? We have a Savior that lives. He lives for us and with us. Pray with me. Lord, as we have worked our way through this interesting and challenging passage in front of us. It's uh, certain to raise questions and maybe give us a bit of discomfort. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would affirm and confirm the love of God for us, the concern he has for his people, and the joy that he intends for each of us as we put our complete trust, as we lean completely on Christ and his 
death, burial, and resurrection for us. Bless us now as we go our way and think on these things and discuss them with one another. I pray that you would bless us as a church as we consider how we can make much of Jesus this week. In your name, amen.